If you're a guest, we are in the midst of our series in the book of Mark. We've entitled the series, Incredible. And this morning, we're preaching from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And the title of this message this morning is, Sent to Serve. Sent to Serve. And the main point of this text, and actually of the entire Gospel of Mark, is found in verse 45 of our text this morning. This is it. This is the epicenter of what this book is all about. And it's the epicenter of what this message is all about. Mark 10.45, you may have heard it before. Here's what it says. For even the Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus reveals the messianic mystery in the clearest of terms. If you look on the map there on the screen. Jesus had been walking toward Jerusalem beginning way up in the north where it says Capernaum. And he's been walking the 120 or so miles all the way down to Jerusalem in the bottom. And he's probably around Jericho right now, about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. Next week's narrative will take place in Jericho with the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And all along the way, he's been telling his disciples, prophesying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die and rise again. 831, he told them. 931, he told them. And every time he told them that he was going to go die in Jerusalem, they kept trying to talk him out of it. And every time they kept trying to talk him out of it, he would use that as an opportunity to teach them what it means to follow him. See, they knew the implications. By now they were getting it. If you're going to Jerusalem to die and we're following you, maybe we're going to die. (laughs) And they were trying to negotiate with the Lord. And Jesus said, no. True disciples, you want to follow me? then you must trust me because I'm not going there just to die. I'm going there to die and rise again from the dead. But it was a difficult message for them to understand. They weren't understanding what it meant to be a disciple. As a matter of fact, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are called the great discipleship discourse. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so what it meant is that you would give your life up for him and you would follow him and stop following your own mind. So this morning... In our text is the third and final time that Jesus will prophesy his death, his resurrection. And he's doing it within the shadow of Jerusalem. Imagine, imagine if you would, walking from, oh, I don't know, Vero Beach to Miami. And imagine you get to about the Fort Lauderdale Airport. It's about 21 miles from here. All right. It's taken you quite a few days to walk there. And at Fort Lauderdale Airport, he says for the third time, I'm going to that city and I'm going to die and rise again. (laughs) You can imagine that his disciples were having a hard time with this because tomorrow they'll probably get there. Tomorrow, if you walk at about three or four uh, miles per hour in a day, you're going to get there. So tomorrow you're going to die. Does that mean we're going to die? 
So they had lots of questions. They had lots of questions. But here is the good news. After his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension into heaven and the spirit was poured out, the disciples finally understood what it meant to follow Jesus. And armed with that understanding, armed with the gospel, they would proclaim this through the entire then known world. Calling that world to follow Jesus. And this morning, that call hits us. Because Jesus is here by his spirit. He's calling you to follow him. And he's expressly sharing with you what that means. And so, as we move forward in this text, I want to bring two questions to your mind. By the way, just to help you understand about preaching in the word of God. We're preaching right now narratives. Okay, these are historical narratives. They are different than preaching from the epistles. When you preach from the epistles, okay, those are more of just truth, all right? Letters written to a church. And you would preach those kind of one way. When you preach an epistle, a lot of times you give the main point of that epistle on the front end, and then you prove that main point, all right? That's deductive preaching. But when you do historical pre- preaching out of historical texts, Oftentimes what you want to do is have a couple of questions drive the text. Because with these stories, oftentimes Jesus is going to a point and these questions will help you get to that point. So the main point oftentimes in a preaching from historical text is inductive. We're going to kind of get there eventually. But some questions are going to guide us there. So I've got two questions that are going to help guide you there. Here they are. These two questions, I think, drive the text. I'm going to write these down. These are two questions that you can be thinking through as we read the text, even in just a moment. Question number one, what did it mean for Jesus to serve? If the main verse of this gospel is that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, what does it mean for Jesus to serve? And then the second question follows naturally from it. If we're following Jesus, what does it mean for us to serve? What does it mean for us to serve? So let's pray. Let's ask God to show us Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let us ask him that this scripture would gain traction in our minds because so often, church, our default is actually to want to be served and not serve. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we read your word, this incredible text of why you came, Lord, that it would change us. It would change me, Lord, from one who can default to just wanting to be served, who can get a little irritated when I'm not served, who can lose sight of what others are thinking, who could fail to consider what my own family would want but rather push through my agenda. Lord, forgive me. Lord, make us into your disciples as we sang in that first song, servants for your glory. Through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Please read it with me silently as I read it out loud. Mark up your Bibles. Interact with this text. This is God's word. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they, the disciples, were on the road going to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
And the Son of Man, referring to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the son of Zebedee's, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Oh my, does that not describe us so many times? (laughs) And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. All right, so point number one, what did it mean for Jesus to serve? Well, what it meant for Jesus to serve, at least according to verse 32, is it meant him leading resolutely, fearlessly to Jerusalem where he had a divine appointment with the cross. That's what it meant. And the disciples, by contrast, were lagging behind Jesus in a state of amazement and fear, as recorded at the end of verse 32. They were amazed at Jesus' resolute desire to go to Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there, death. And they were afraid because they were wondering if his death in Jerusalem would mean their death in Jerusalem. See, the bottom line is this. They did not know what awaited them in Jerusalem. So this personal uncertainty, coupled with the prophetic certainty of what awaited Jesus, caused them to be unnerved. They misunderstood discipleship. And so they were reluctantly following the Lord. He was out ahead. I can imagine they're kind of just like, you know, walking behind him, looking around. Is there an ambush? We're 20 miles away. He's going to die there. When's it going to happen? They were amazed. They were afraid. And many times, church, we too, having failed to understand what it means to follow Jesus, can follow him reluctantly. I don't know about you, but I sometimes wrestle with that. You want me to do what, Lord? Lord, you haven't done this for me. And I can even follow him a little fearfully. Lord, what's around the corner? If I do that, will I have provision? What's going to happen to me at work? What about my children? I don't know the future, so I can follow reluctantly. I can follow fearfully. But here is the good news, church. 
Even though I fail to believe God's power to raise Christ from the dead, because ultimately that was the issue here, a lack of faith. They got stuck on the part that he was going to die in Jerusalem. They had a hard time believing that he would rise from the dead in Jerusalem. And we do too at times. We fail to see the resurrection power of Christ. As Corey mentioned, we see our failures, we see our weaknesses, but we don't see God's power. And that can be us. But in those moments, what God does is he comes and he speaks his word to us. And that's what he does to the disciples here. Look at verse 33. Jesus is going to come to these reluctant, fearful, amazed, not in a good way, amazed disciples. And he's going to bring a word, a word of faith, a word that is truth. Notice the word begins with we in verse 33. (laughs) We. We. We are all going there. And then he gives the most detailed description of his passion to date. Look at what Jesus says. Look at verses 33 and 34. Follow him with me. The son of man, Jesus' favorite designation. It comes from Daniel 7. This is the one, the Messiah, the ruler, the son of man. Will be delivered. Who delivered Jesus into the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Romans? God the Father did. Jesus went willingly. And they will condemn him to death. And so right there, the disciples are thinking, wait a second, you're not going to be crowned in Jerusalem, but you're going to be crucified in Jerusalem? Yes, I am. They will mock him. They will spit on him. And they will flog him. Friends, don't you see? Jesus is walking through the Old Testament prophecies of him. Go look it up. Go look up Psalm 22. Go look up Isaiah 50. He knows what's going to happen to him. He doesn't make it happen to him. It's going to happen to him because it's God's will. And they are absolutely unnerved at this point. Unnerved. And they will kill him on a cross. And after three days, he will rise from the dead. They probably didn't hear that part. They were still stuck on flogging and spitting and mocking and crucifying. They never heard, and three days he will rise again from the dead. See, Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He understood that God the Father's will was for him to go there and pour out his blood for the ransom that we celebrated earlier, and he embraced it wholeheartedly with faith. But the disciples did not. And oftentimes we fail to embrace God's will wholeheartedly and in faith. Particularly when we hear crucifixion or cross or denial or metaphorically speaking spitting and mocking, and flogging. It's hard for us, and it was hard for them. They couldn't bring themselves to believe that this was God's plan. No, you don't understand. Jesus Messiah is going to rule. He's going to be crowned in Jerusalem. He can't be crucified. That's the end of the whole dream if he is. They were trying to correct God. In verses 35 to 37, we see an example of how much they did not understand what it meant to follow Jesus when inserted into this very poignant moment when Jesus is laying out his heart before his disciples. By the way, this is another proof that there were Latinos there in the text. They interrupt Jesus. (laughs) I love growing up in my family. You could be pouring your heart out. Someone's just going to interrupt you. And then someone will interrupt them. And then the voices get louder. And in our tile homes, it sounds like World War III. And everybody thinks they're going to kill each other. I said, no, they're just trying to talk over each other. (laughs) So James and John just interrupt the Lord. 
They're not even listening. You know how when some people look at you, but they're not listening, they're waiting to you kind of take a pause or a breath and then they just insert what they want? Well, that's what happens. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Amazing. They want (coughs) a blank check from God. They haven't even told him what they want. He says, would you do for me whatever I ask you right now? If you're wise, you go, no. <laughs> ask me first. They're trying to play the Lord. They've come not to follow, but to get. Boy, I can relate to that, can you? I can certainly relate to that. They didn't understand what Jesus had spoken about true disciples. They didn't understand that to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. You want to be first, you must be last and servant of all. They didn't get it. It was audacious. It was sad. Interesting how Jesus responded to them. Look at verse 36. He doesn't rebuke them. He asked them a question. What do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine if God showed up here right now? Other than in this sermon, because he is here, right, in this sermon by spirit. But I mean like literally, or an angel, and just came up and says, all right, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, after your heart started beating again, what would you say to him? You see, this question, this question was designed to reveal their motives. Would they seek God's glory or their own? And their answer in verse 37 sadly said it all. Look at verse 37. They were going for the kill right here. And they said to him, I'm sure they were thinking, all right, we're in. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left. By the way, in the Jewish world, those were the two places of greatest honor aside from the main guy. So if you saw any picture, anything happening in Judaism, the guy on the right or the person on the right was the first one to be honored, the one on the left, the second one. Jesus would be in the center. They're asking to be his number one and two guys. And the other 10 are watching this. I mean, I can't, Peter must have been really mad. Peter's like, whoa, whoa excuse me? What am I here, Swiss cheese? Swiss cheese? Uh, we, there were three of us that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. I was in the inner circle. I had Jesus here. You guys, you brothers, are, are, are pushing me out? I mean, I can just make, like. <laughs> but here's what, here's the sadness of it. James and John missed the biblical teaching that Jesus' glory was going to be revealed at the cross and there were two people at his right and left-hand side at the place where his glory was revealed, but they weren't on thrones and they weren't apostles. They were two criminals hanging on crosses. They didn't understand what they were asking. You want to hang on my right and left-hand side in just a week or so? They didn't get it. They didn't get it. And so... At this time, they, their question revealed that they simply did not understand that suffering on the cross for the sins of his people had to precede his glory at the right hand of the Father. They got it right that he was Messiah. They got it right that eventually he would be at the right hand of the Father in glory and that there would be, he would be there ruling and reigning, but they missed the intervening step to glory, which is suffering. And so do we. So do we. So often, don't we? We get confused by it. Lord, why is this happening? And the Lord helps us here. After three prophecies of his death and resurrection, they don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. So his question revealed that. Let me go back to the question I asked you. 
What would you do if the Lord said to us, what do you want me to do for you? I want you to talk about that this afternoon amongst yourselves. Seriously. What would you say, teenager? What would you say, college person? What would you say, businessman? What would you say, mom? What would you say? Would it reveal a heart and life devoted to God's glory? Or would it reveal your own self-interest? Even if, if your devotion to God's glory meant that you would suffer significantly, what would you say? Well, in verse 38, Jesus corrects them. He says to them, you do not know what you are asking me. They didn't understand what it meant to serve Jesus. Therefore, Jesus would not, could not grant their foolish requests. Instead, Jesus gave James and John and the 10 who were listening and all the rest of Christianity down through the ages that have listened through this narrative, a much needed lesson on the nature of true discipleship. And this lesson came in the form of a cup and a baptism. Look at verse 38b. Look at it with me. Verse 38b. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The cup represented God's will for Jesus to take the wrath that we deserve. When he was in the garden, he spoke of the cup. May this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will, Lord. And the baptism was the baptism of suffering that he was about to endure. It was the baptism so that he could relate to us. He would come and he could relate to us. Remember when he was baptized by John the Baptist? He had no sin, but he said, no, no, do it. Because I am God incarnate. I want to relate to all of you. I'm not being baptized for my sins, but I am being baptized to to relate to you. It's the baptism of him suffering so he could be a human, incarnate, God incarnate. So then he could die and drink the cup of God's wrath for us. Right there, James and John, when he asked them, so can you do that? They should have said, no, we can't. Because they couldn't. Instead, they said, yes, we can. So then he said, oh, well, you will drink this cup and you will be baptized with this baptism, meaning that they would suffer for the sake of the gospel. But friends, they could not drink the cup of God's wrath that you and I deserve. They could not be baptized with the suffering that would win our release from sin. That's the point. That's why Jesus had to come. That's verse 45 and let's go there. Here's the messianic mystery revealed in verse 45. Listen, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Being a Christian is not about what you do. It's about what God has done. It's about you recognizing and admitting, I can't drink that cup. I can't make right what I know is wrong between God and me. What I've tried to sear my conscience with through career or medications or pleasure or power. And I know I'm wrong. Something's wrong. Only one can take the wrath that we deserve. Be baptized with the suffering that we deserve. And that's Jesus. Verse 44. It reveals the full answer of what it meant for Jesus to suffer and serve us. And it's this ransom that he pays for us. For even the Son of Man, look at it, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Danny Aiken and his commentary on Mark says the following. He, Jesus, came to give his life as a ransom. 
This is what theologians often call the wonderful exchange. You want to know what the wonderful exchange is? Breaking from the quote right now, Christ's life for your life. You want to know what the wonderful exchange is? Christ's righteousness for your wickedness. Christ's obedience for your disobedience. Christ's favor for the wrath of God that you deserve. That's the great exchange. You can't do that for yourself. You can't. You can't be good enough. Going, continuing on the quote, ransom means to deliver by purchase. It means a payment, usually of money, required to release someone from punishment or slavery. Oh, friends, as Corey said so well, that payment was not to the devil. The only thing the devil got on the cross was defeat and shame. He got mocked openly. Read Colossians 2. That payment was to God the Father. It was God the Father. And we needed a ransom because we had, we had all gladly and willingly sold ourselves into the bondage of slavery and to sin. When he purchased us, our slave masters, sin, death, and hell had to set us free. You know what I love about 1 Peter 1, which we're about to read in a moment? Is that Peter, writing this years later, was probably the one that told Mark exactly what Jesus said in Mark 10.45. Remember, the gospel of Mark is, are basically Peter's memoirs of his time with Jesus. It was written to the church in Rome. Peter was the pastor of the church in Rome. So in 1 Peter, later, years later, listen to what Peter writes. Look at it. 1 Peter 1, 18-21. Knowing that you were ransomed, and you know he was thinking about Jesus' words when he wrote this many years later. And like Corey led us this morning, he was enjoying it. He was savoring it. He was remembering it. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, and you can't buy your way into salvation, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in Christ. Dear unbeliever, I I appeal to you this morning, repent and believe in Jesus this scripture, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21, is for you, for all those who believe by grace, by faith. And dear believer, my appeal to us all is that we would repent and serve. Because you see, God saved us so that we might serve. We have been saved to serve. We've been saved to serve. And that leads us to point two. We've already discussed what it meant for Jesus to serve. Now, what does it mean for us to serve? Because, friends, we've been saved to serve. What does it mean? We'll go back to verse 41. We left you with the ten ready to pounce on the two. And in verse 41, it tells us, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So why were they indignant at James and John? Because, James and John, you don't understand what the teacher is saying. No, you know why they were indignant? Because they had the same ambitions, and James and John beat them to the punch. They were mad. They got outfoxed. We're going to Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to rule, and you guys got the, the best two slots? I don't want to work for you, James and John. You're not the boss of me. (laughs) 
Oh, friends, does that not describe us in the church at times? We fight our little pitiful fights over turf. It's not even ours, and we don't get it. Isn't that true? We do it in our homes, in our businesses. We fail to understand that Jesus is saying, a disciple of mine doesn't do that. And that's exactly what he does. He gives them a lesson beginning in verse 42, and he contrasts life in the kingdom of God with life in the kingdom of man. Look at it, verse 42. And Jesus called them to himself, to him, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Oh, listen, the church in Rome understood that well. Nero had been lording it over them and exercising devastating authority over them. He was beginning to kill Christians now. He was beginning to violate the church pretty massively. It would grow worse. But they understood that. Oh, yeah, that's how the world leads. It's harsh. It's harsh. And then in verse 43, he says the following. But, but, it shall not be so among you. And now he lays down the teaching of what it means to follow Jesus. You ready? Verse 43b. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Church, do you know we experienced greatness last Sunday? You were part of it, actually, if you were here, particularly if you gave. Let me, tell, let me describe to you the greatness that we experienced last Sunday. If you see Ileana in the front there in the wheelchair, she comes from a very needy family. And David Behar, a member in our church, found out about this family. And so he said to us, how can we serve this family? And so we sent out a call to the church. Who would want to serve this family? And David Bush, David and Melinda leading the the youth said, you know what? That'd be a great project for the youth to do. And so they rallied the youth and here you have them. These are great people. Now you won't see them on any award ceremony. They won't be receiving anything at some, you know, award ceremony. Self-control is happening right now, major league. Um, You won't see them on any kind of television show. But these are great people because on a Sunday afternoon when I was in shorts receiving ceviche from a very wonderful person that was wonderful, by the way, delightful, watching a sports program, okay, in my air-conditioned house. Oh, yes, I wasn't there. You'll notice my picture's not there. They were out in the sun sweating, laying down sod for Ileana and her family, the least of them. And you're great because I don't know how many of you gave but we asked for 200. You know how much money came in last week? It was last minute. There were these little, whatever they had, these little things, right? Technical term, these little things. And you guys put money in these little things. You know how much money we raised? A little over $300. Well, it turns out we said $200 would buy the sod. It didn't. It was $300 to buy the sod. So I think David said they had like $5 left over. Church, you're great. You're great. No one may know it. You gave in cash. You're not going to be able to claim it on your taxes, whatever. But you're great. That's what Jesus said. He turns upside down the thinking of greatness. And then he goes one step further. He's going to go, I'll tell you what, I'm going to trump servant. I'm going to go to literally, in that culture, the last person on the ring, on the rung, the last one. And he goes to slave. Look at verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Listen, a slave in that culture was truly the last person, the last one to eat, the last one to do anything. He served everybody else, and if there was something left, then he got some. A slave. That's where it would be. This idea of being first and being a slave simply flew in the face of all earthly definitions of greatness. 
Here's the lesson, church, one last time. From the one who led the way. From the one who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. From God incarnate. You ready? Whoever would be great must be a servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. That's Christianity. That's our Lord. That's who he is making us to be. It's who we are and it's who we're becoming, right? Because some days I'm not a very good servant. I don't know about you. Last of all? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I want to be first of all. I, I watched my three uh, granddaughters the other morning, six in the morning. <laughs> I'd forgotten what that was like. <laughs> By nine, man, I'm like, okay, when are you getting back, Mindy? <laughs> this is the definition of dying right here. <laughs> And by the way, they behaved themselves. They were very nice. We laughed. It was a great time. But they're three little ones. I mean, a baby who's about 12 months old. And and I thought, but this is greatness. This is greatness, moms. This is greatness. No one sees it but God. And heaven standing up, giving giving you a standing ovation. It's greatness. There are many other examples I just, that one hit me. <laughs> so I was like, ah. let me go do something important to like think theological thoughts. And I need to do that, by the way, guys. Okay, I, I had to do the sermon, all right? But man, I got a nice little taste of greatness. How's God calling you to be great? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Here's the appeal of this message. Here's the appeal of this word. Jesus came to serve and he's calling us to serve and he saved us to serve. And therefore it means being last of all and it means servant of all and slave of all. What does service look like for you at home? Asking parents, siblings, children, spouse, what they would like to do and then doing it with a joyful heart. Very practical, cleaning your room. Washing the car or the dishes. You fill in the blank. How can you be great at home? How about in the church? church, Serving the children in the children's ministry. Volunteering to set up at 8 in the morning. Texting or calling others on a regular basis. A a dear friend in the church has been doing that with me. And I've been following his example. How hard it is just to text people. All it means is I start thinking of someone other than me. I get off the me channel, you know. (laughs) I go to other channels. You know, all me, all the time, 24-7, the me channel. And I just click it. Oh, I wonder how they're doing, how she's doing, how he's doing. Hey, how you doing? My friend taught me that. Maybe it's making a meal for someone. Seriously, ceviche, thank you. I'm not just, I, please, not, not me. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you to make it for me, okay? Please don't hear that. Pastor's fine, I eat well, Desi is a really good cook. Just giving you an example, okay? Do it to one another. But, you know, think about someone when you're making something. Make a little extra. Put it in a bag. I guess you don't put food in a bag, do you? Okay, thank you. Put it in whatever's appropriate and go take it to them. It was delightful for me. Got to knock on the door Sunday afternoon. Hey, pop it open. Ah, It's really good. Haven't said thank you yet, but it was really good. (laughs) Do it. Buy groceries for someone. Go change someone's sod. At work, being faithful in the smallest and most unseen tasks. Doing our work is unto the Lord and not to the boss who we're trying to manipulate a little bit to get a raise. 
in your community, serving the last of all like David and David and our youth did. Smiling. Smiling when you're driving. Smiling when you're waiting in line. For some of us, just not saying anything negative when we're waiting in line is the start. We are saved to serve. God gave us the grace to declare and demonstrate this gospel reality. Let us pray for the grace to do so. Worship team, would you join me up front? Lord, I'm, I'm aware that different ones here are in different places when it comes to this message. Lord, I'm also aware that all of us have, sadly, still the flesh the flesh. We, we, we have a new engine, but if we let go of the wheel sometimes, there's a little problem with the alignment and we tend to drift. We tend to drift. We tend to drift. And where many of us tend to drift is me, self. So Lord, thank you that you lovingly, graciously, with your hand, help us to correct the steering. Lord, that you would give us full understanding that one who follows you is following, following one who, who willingly gave his life as a ransom, who willingly went to Jerusalem to be flogged and, and mocked and spit upon and beaten. The God in the flesh, in faith, did it. So when you call us to suffer, to drink that cup, not the way you did, because no one can, but as your follower to suffer, Lord, help us to not lose faith, get discouraged to complain or become bitter or even take it personally. Lord, put our eyes on the glory beyond the cross, despising the shame of the cross, but looking at the glory for that's what you did, Lord. Let us see you risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, pouring out the spirit and promising us one day to share your glory. Let us remember that the path to that glory runs through suffering. Let us do it willingly where our arms get weak and our knees start wobbling. Our vision gets clouded. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.